Hello and welcome back everybody to another episode of the Get Informed Podcast with your host, Tom. And with me today, I have a very special guest, known as the questioner of currency himself, the man with his mind on the money, and creator of the newsletter Questioning Money, Mr. Sean Cover. What's going on, Sean? Hey there, Tom. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. Um, happy to be here. Beautiful. I'm glad you could be here today because we're going to talk about something that literally everyone deals with, money, right? What is money? That's the pretty much the big question here. So do you want to tell us? Right. So most of us don't really think about what money is at all. We have opinions on how people spend money. We know that we need to go to work to earn money, but we don't really ever think about how money actually works. Now, I started wondering, what really is money? I didn't start wondering about this question myself until around two and a half or three years ago. You know, I'm the kind of person that can easily get pulled into a deep dive on any interesting topic. You know, one day it could be the history of tequila, the other, the next day it could be the history of Bolivia, right? You know, it's easy to get yourself into deep dives about interesting things. And I started wondering about money how money works, and monetary systems. And as I started to read about it more, I became absolutely fascinated by the question of what is money. So over the last two to three years, I have been extensively studying this question. I've been looking into the history of money, different monetary systems throughout history, what makes good money and what makes bad money. And it's really interesting. It turns out that a lot of the problems we have today can be traced directly back to how our system of money works. And our system of money impacts us in a lot of ways that we don't even realize. Absolutely. Because, you know, the main the main thing that people would probably say to us today, right, is like capitalism, right? It's, just, it's, it's like one blanket term to summarize how our society functions economically, how we trade goods and services uh, in terms of, you know, economic trade. So cash... Um, now we have things like debit, right, and credit and things like that. So the question is now we need to find out why do we have this money? Why is this system being used and how does it benefit us as people, right? I have oh, – I probably only have a couple dollars in my wallet right now, but I have my bank account, right? I have my credit cards. I have student debt. I have all these different things of this whole system now. You know, how did we get to this point? You touched on a really interesting point there and – it is true that a lot of people might say something just like, oh, capitalism, corruption, or anything. But what we need to realize is that how money works is not supposed to be political in any sense. Money is not supposed to be a political tool. Money is a neutral way to exchange and value goods. When you look into what is money, it is worthwhile asking, why do we have money in the first place, right? So a lot, of, a lot of us have heard about what barter is before, right? It's trading one good directly for another good. You know, if I'm a chicken farmer and you're a blacksmith, I'll trade you chickens for blacksmiths. And it's important to understand why that doesn't work, right? Because if you don't want my chickens and you're a blacksmith, then the system already starts to fall apart. You know, there's too many prices and it just doesn't work in a barter system. Now, what's interesting is that there's actually no 
history of any society that entirely functioned on barter. Barter is really just a tool that we can use to understand why we need money. There is no actual history of just barter. Um, so what did people do before money? Well, the first records of the history of money really go back to around 9,000 BC, and the first coins didn't really start until around 1,000 BC, close to zero. So there's like 8,000 years of history of pre-coin money, and the reason barter is such a good example is because what starts as barter eventually turns to money. Now, when you're in a barter system, it will become obvious very quickly that it's worthwhile to acquire certain goods specifically for the purpose of then trading them for other goods, right? There are certain goods that people will always want more than other goods. And people will start to acquire those goods more and more. And eventually those goods become the first forms of money. So things like cattle, silk, you know, everyday items or not everyday items, but whatever good a society had eventually developed into being money. Pretty much all like necessities, things that you would use for everyday survival, for your family, for your career, for whatever career or, you know, uh, skilled labor that you had to offer to your society, um, your, you know, your civilization. So, all right. So we can see that. Right. So, so even if a society did start off as a barter society back in 9000 BC, quickly some good or some combination of goods would be not chosen by conscious choice by the people of that society, but a good would naturally arise to become money. And what we see over the history of money is that people will naturally progress towards the form of money that has the best monetary properties. You know, money until recently has never been something that we have chosen to be money. Money has always developed naturally through goods that have the best properties of money mm -hmm. so then what well, so then how do we get into this the system that we have today so why is it that we follow this um you know this specific example of capitalism here in america we'll talk about america specifically we well pretty much everywhere is you know capitalist but how does american capitalism specifically differentiate from other types of economic um, systems around the world or in past history? And wh why is it something that we keep and we use here? There's got to be something special about it. Right. So what capitalism is supposed to be really is just a way to price goods, right? It's supposed to be that the price of something is a function of how many people want that good and who is willing to supply that good. And where those two points meet in the middle, you get a price. And that's what capitalism is supposed to be. Now, that's not what a lot of the conversation about capitalism actually is, though. And that gets to a interesting point of, you know, money and power and the relationship between those two things. Now, money is power, but to me, it's not that the problem is money. And what I mean by that is it's not necessarily that people have too much money, you know, even the people with the most money. The problem's not necessarily that those people have too much money. The problem is that the way our system of money works today, or not necessarily just the system of money, but our whole American economic system of 2020 works today, is that those with a lot of money 
are able to change the rules of the system to protect themselves so that they can acquire more power, right? It's not the money itself that's the problem in my view. It's that we have a system where the money is being used to exploit the, the system itself. Oh, absolutely. I would 100% agree with you. I think money is seen more as like a scapegoat to kind of distract from the actual corruption that's manipulating the use of money. Right. And I do agree, of course, that money is often the tool that is used to corrupt. But to me, that mostly reflects on a system of rules that are susceptible to corruption and that that is what needs to be changed. It's not necessarily that we need to blame the people with the money to a degree. It's that we need to be focusing on revamping a system that is prone to this kind of meddling and corruption. So before, you know, before we, you know, we're talking about a lot of the, some of the negatives that we definitely see and that are very overt in our society, but we got to ask some questions as to how did, how did we build up to this system? There has to be some pros as to how this system of money works today for us and how it was set up. So like, what are, yeah, what are some of the positives? Sure. So in order to talk about the positives of our modern system of money, we need to look back a little bit at how the system of money developed. Now, before 1971, the dollar was on a gold standard, right? And what that meant was there is a limit to the amount of new dollars that could be created based on the reserves of gold by the federal bank. So there was a limit to the amount of dollars that could be created. What has happened since then is that in 1971, President Nixon took us off the gold standard. And now there is no longer a cap on the amount of money that can be created. So take that and pause for now, right? Mm -hmm. So our system of money has always been what is known as inflationary, which means that the amount of money circulating over time grows, right? There's more money being printed over time. And that makes sense to a lot of us. Of course, there has to be more money being created over time. And what an inflationary system of money does is a number of things. And there are many good things about this kind of system. The main reason that we have this is because it reduces the burden of debt over time. So when prices rise over time, your debt in real terms falls. For an example of that, if you buy a house in 1970 for $100,000 and you finish paying off that loan in 2020, you've paid off a $100,000 loan Yet your house, due to inflation, is now worth $600,000. You've made money by taking out debt to buy a house. So our system of money encourages people to take out loans to invest into the system. This spurs growth in a number of areas. It's not just things like buying houses. It also, it also encourages investors or small business owners to take out loans to improve their business, hire more people for jobs. It drives things like technological growth. So there are a number of key reasons why we have this sort of inflationary system. 
Yeah, so it's con- so it's constantly going to be growing, and that's that's the goal and the intention, right? For these numbers and every, so it's just constantly wanting businesses to grow, for the banks to grow, for services to grow, everything. Right, and this has worked over the last hundred years for the most part, but it there are some downsides to a system of money like this as well, and those downsides don't often get mentioned in conversation frequently. The first is obvious, and it's that if you have no control over the supply of money, you are at risk of a hyperinflationary event. One of the obvious cons of a hyperinflationary system is that you are at risk of a hyperinflationary event, which means that the value of your currency drops significantly quickly overnight because prices skyrocket. If you just print, you know, 100 times the amount of dollars that there are right now, the price of everything would skyrocket. And this occurs a lot in a number of places. The average inflation rate in Venezuela over the last two or three years has been over 40,000%. It's unbelievable, and it has totally robbed the savings of people in countries like Venezuela and Zimbabwe. Um, It's... It's worth taking a second to stop and realize that managing a currency supply successfully is not the norm, okay? While countries like the U.S. and England and the Euro are lucky to have a relatively stable currency, that is absolutely not the norm across the globe and certainly not throughout history. Currencies fail all the time. And we are lucky and privileged that we have been lucky enough to have a relatively disciplined central bank managing our currency. So I guess Adam Smith was on to something, is pretty much what you're saying. He was on to something there at the time, but an important link was broken in 1971 when we left the gold standard, okay? Because once the cap on the currency limit or the limit of the amount of money that we could print was no longer limited by gold reserves. What's happened since then is that the amount of money that has been created since 1971 has skyrocketed. There is, right, there's more than 10 times the amount of money circulating now than there was in 1971. And we need to talk about why this is problematic, right? Yeah, because I, I mean, I have a question, right? Like, as someone who knows almost nothing about um, money like that, when you say that we're off of a uh, gold standard and, you know, a lot of people know that we're not on that standard anymore and we just tend to think, you know, what? so what does the government do? Does it does it just print money? Does it just print money to save its, uh, save its skin when it's in, you know, too deep of a hole? So, like, what are those implications of releasing us from that that cap? Like, what what is the dollar now rooted in? What gives it its value? What gives the dollar its value is a few things. It's mostly a, it's a combination of trust that out of every government in the world, the rest of the world believes that the United States is less likely to hyperinflate its currency than any other country. They believe that we are the strictest, most careful way um, 
you know, central bank management of the currency. It's a belief that we're not going to hyperinflate the dollar, which is in conjunction with the fact that the dollar um, and U.S. goods are traded across the globe, right? There are dollars all across the world. And that demand for dollars globally actually reduces the risk of our own currency. Now, I'm going to take a second to pause and explain why you can't just print as much money as you want. Because I think it's important to take a second to sort of visualize this in a couple ways, right? Mm -hmm. When you look around your room right now, you see, you know, a computer, a desk, a microphone, maybe a TV, whatever. You have your room. Now, pretend that that's an economy, right? Your room is the entire economy. Now, pretend that in your economy of the one room, you have a total currency supply of $100, which means that everything in your room adds up to $100. If you decide to double the supply of money, what changes in your room? Nothing changes. You might have $200 in your economy now, but you still have one computer, one chair, one microphone, and everything. What changes when you create more dollars is that the price of those things rises proportionally to the amount of new dollars that are created. You know, if your computer was $10 in a $100 world and your chair was $5, then your computer is now $20 and your chair is $10 in a $200 world. To think of that in one other way, if you imagine that the entire American economy is like a pizza pie cut into eight slices, right? If you print more money, the pizza pie of the American economy stays the same size. You don't make the pizza any bigger by printing any more dollars. What you do when you print more dollars is you cut the pizza into nine slices now. And when you print more money, the pizza pie doesn't get any bigger. What you're doing now is instead of cutting the pizza into eight slices, you're now cutting it into nine. And that ninth slice is whatever you're printing the money for. Now, who gets hurt in this scenario? It's the people who have the other slices of pizza. Because before they had one eighth of the pie, and now they have one ninth. In real life, the other slices of pizza are the savings of every American. So when you're creating new money, you're really taking wealth and savings in the form of purchasing power away from Americans. In a way, it's actually like a flat tax on your savings because if you increase the money supply by 10%, what you're essentially doing is you're taking 10% of the purchasing power away from savers. Now, this is hard to wrap your head around a little bit because you still see the same amount of money in your bank account, right? It's not like you actually lose dollars in your bank account when new money is created. But what happens, and it's not immediate either, is that your purchasing power goes down over time. So while you still may have $10,000 in the bank, your $10,000 is now worth less than it was before the new money was printed. So we have we have this uh, type of philosophy. I would say that a, a good majority of people follow, but um, you know those all you see on the cartoons all the time where 
people stuff money in their mattresses and there's like this saving culture, this hoarding of money culture that we have. But what it seems like is this hoarding of money and saving and the stockpiling of cash is actually not good. Is that true? I would phrase it differently, but you're on the right track because I would say that we don't actually have a system of hoarding cash. I think we have a system that is forcing people to go into debt at the expense of saving money. But where you're right is that if you just save your money in either you know your mattress or even in the bank, you are losing purchasing power over time because of our system. Um, and where this becomes more significant is again with this link that was broken in 1971, where now we're printing more than 10 times more money than there was in 1971. What's happened since then is if you think of this idea, the pizza pie example, every new dollar printed reduces the value of every dollar already in existence. And we've been printing more dollars than ever before, you know, right now and over the last 20 years. So what that does is, as we just said, if you're saving money in the bank, you're losing value every year. And the people this hurts the most are low-income Americans. The reason why is because if you are in the middle class or above, you are likely investing some or most of your money in things like the stock market, right? You're putting money away either in a 401k or just a regular investment portfolio. And when you invest that money in a, you know, in the stock market, that money is growing over time. And not only are you maintaining your purchasing power, but it's actually growing over time alongside, um, you know, alongside the stock market growth. Yeah. Instead of just keeping it in the bank, right? Right. Exactly. Low income Americans, you know, they spend most of their money on necessities and they, for the most part, can't invest their savings. You know, they need to, if they have a minimal amount of savings, they need to keep that savings in the bank, you know, for other purchases or emergencies or whatever. They can't risk investing their money in something like the stock market. And, you know, maybe they can a little bit, but not nearly to the degree that the middle class and above can do. And what that results in is that over the last 50 years, as more and more money has been printed than ever, the Middle class and above are investing more and more money than ever. You know, this new money has to go somewhere. Um, when it goes to lower income Americans, they spend that money and it goes into the pockets of the middle class and above. And the middle class and above then invest that money in the stock market to maintain and grow their purchasing power. Whereas the people at the bottom are having their already minimal cash savings have a reduced purchasing power over time from all of this monetary growth. And the gap between the top and the bottom increases. And, you know, the increase in wealth inequality is really often traced back to the early 70s. But in conversations politically, rarely does anyone tie the growth in wealth inequality to, you know, leaving the gold standard. If you said that to a lot of people, they would perhaps raise an eyebrow and be like, what do you mean? But um, 
the divergence started then in 1971, and it's only been growing as more and more dollars have been created. Yes, uh, you know, and the, a couple things come to mind. Like the the first one, I'll give you like the most immediate example example that I can think of, and it is currently with the COVID epidemic and uh, stimulus checks. Right, our government put right. out a twelve hundred dollar stimulus check to every you know, well whoever was eligible for it, but to most American adults, and that was a flat twelve hundred dollars, insisting to um, pretty much help Americans afford their rent, their car payments, because a lot of people got laid off. We have over one point five or six million unemployment cases. So, like you were just saying, that money. It gets deposited right into their bank accounts, and it's not able to be invested. They cannot allow that money to sit and grow as opposed to it just being put right back into the economy, whether it's for rent, for groceries, for a mechanic to fix your car, to get to a, you know a new job interview or something like that. And that money immediately is now gone, but it's filtered back into the economy, into the hands of Walmart, into the hands of Amazon, into ShopRite and other large superstructures of companies that then will take that money and then grow their amount of wealth, right? So that's the system that, the cycle that you've been talking, you're kind of like describing, right? Right. Now, when we were talking earlier and you mentioned, you know, what's something that's important, you know, that we can do now that we're not tied to a gold standard. This coronavirus stimulus is actually a great example of that. Because if we were limited in the amount of money that could be created um, due to gold reserves, we would not be able to print $2 trillion off of the top of our heads to, you know, fund this kind of stimulus. We would be stuck. That's actually good. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So it's a good thing. It's just, well, there are trade-offs, is the point. Um, there are trade-offs, and a system like this does raise inequality. Now, the COVID pandemic is a particularly special case, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah, absolutely. There are times where maybe like a year ago, I would say, you know, this is already too problematic, the amount of money that we're creating right now. But mm-hmm. if we're talking about you know, the pandemic when millions of jobs have been lost, like it, it, this is about as, um, you know, this is like the time that we should be printing, you know, dollars to do something. Um, to keep the economy stable pretty much, right? Because the loss of jobs means loss of revenue, um, loss of growth within the stock market and things like that. So this money is going to just help kind of keep that, that growth alive, right? That's pretty, that's basically so, the goal. Yes, that is the goal, and that's what it's doing. But here's where it's kind of a problem, right? Um, the reason that, you know, if you're thinking about forest fires, okay, forest fire experts say that you don't put out every small forest fire, right? You're supposed to let small forest fires do their thing because it's part of the natural cycle, Right. When a small forest fire burns, it clears out some of the brush, you know, that accumulates in the forest. Right. It sort of resets the forest. Yes, that's what they're doing and it is working. But here's why that's not actually a great thing long term. If you put out every little forest fire, what eventually happens is that 
those bad leaves, that junk, it builds up to such a degree that eventually a forest fire occurs and it's so built up because you let all of this junk accumulate in the forest by putting out all the small forest fires and you have a massive forest fire that you're unable to contain, right? So you need to have small natural forest fires to prevent a massive one from occurring in the future. Um, And that same mindset is true for economic cycles. You need to have small recessions here and there to clear out, you know, all the bad debt, the malinvestment. It needs to reset and start from scratch. You know, bad businesses go out of business and good businesses come up in the ashes to reset the cycle and keep the forest fires small. Now, What's happened over the last 50 years, but really crystallized with the 2008 recession, is that we have now decided that we must put out every small forest fire. We've been putting out every small forest fire in the economy, and we've not been letting the brush adequately clear out. Um, Now, even a couple of years ago, before I started this history of money, I might have been on the side that the 2008 bailout should have been larger. And we could have come out of that recession, you know, even quicker if there had been a larger bailout. But what I'm seeing now, and it's directly as a result of all of this monetary history that I've been studying, is that when you put out the forest fire of the 2008 bailout and you don't let You know, these zombie companies with massive amounts of debt fail. You bail them out. You don't actually fix the economy. You know, you're just kind of keeping things, walking forward, accumulating more bad debt. We've patched it up um, and we're keeping it running instead of, you know, letting the bone reset or whatever of a broken arm. Um, And it's gotten to a degree now where... There's no way to just have a small recession anymore. Now, COVID was obviously a needle that popped a bubble, but we've already been a place and now there's no going back after the amount of stimulus and bailout that there's been to the point where the stock market is at all time highs right now. Um, We are an economy that has a lot of built up damage and debt and brush in our forest And there's not going to be any way to clear out the problems without there being a massive forest fire that, you know, burns it all down. Yeah, and we we have no idea when that can happen either, right? Right. I mean, it could have been this, but the... And again, this isn't this is a unique point in history, but the government and the Federal Reserve have essentially printed money as our way out of this. We've printed our way out of, I mean, at least the stock market collapse so far. You know, the real economic damage is deeper when you look at some of these small businesses that, you know, they say 50% of them are never coming back. They're permanently shut. You know, for now, we've propped it up through money printing to a degree that has never been seen before. Um, And it's not just the U.S. It's on a completely global scale. We've never had a coordinated, 
you know, global effort of money printing the way that we've seen right now. Um, mm-hmm. And it's my concern that we are sort of propping up, you know, we're propping up an economy that it actually needs to have a bad period to reset. Um, and that, I mean, again, when we're talking about stimulus for people's lives, I, I'm here for it. And I actually do think we need to still have more stimulus, um, at least while the pandemic is still going on. You know, we have not beaten the pandemic, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm here for more stimulus for now, but it's going to come due at some point in the future. And if we continue to not let there be any small forest fires, we don't let big things fail, then um, none of the problems that I think we see with our economy are going to get fixed. You know, there's still going to be more inequality. There's going to be more corruption. There's going to be more debt and more zombie companies unless we start letting things fall apart. Naturally, basically, like you said, the natural cycle of things. If if a company cannot sustain their economic, you know, position, then they have to pretty much just fail out, right? And, you know, give room for a new company to eventually sprout in its place. It's almost like a phoenix, right? When the phoenix dies, it turns to ash, and then a new phoenix will rise from the ashes. Exactly. Um, but I think we might be um, too far gone, and that I don't know that we're ever going to let the new phoenix rise from the ashes so is that where you know everyone likes to throw around the term too big to fail is that essentially what we're talking about here yes on like a country level it is my assessment uh that the only way that we can have a more you know a better built economy would be to let things fail but that could result in a like a true multi-year depression to the degree that I'm not advocating for it. You know, I'm simply saying that I'm analyzing that um, the economy will not be fixed unless we have a probably massive depression. And since nobody's going to let a massive depression happen, I'm still concerned for the future of the economy. Oh, definitely. I I don't think we could just fix yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems as if it's kind of like a larger-than-life scenario where it's almost gotten so large that we're just kind of flying by the edge of our seats, um, just trying to figure out, like, every single day is a new situation where it's like, okay, so the inflation rate is this high, so now we've never had to deal with this unprecedented uh, amount before, so what do we do? And I feel like, I guess, like, economists are just trying to figure out what to do next, right? It's, it's hard to predict... The few, you know, I'm, I'm sure economists that's their job, right? They they are going to predict future economies and percentages right. and all these things, and but there's no way to really know. Now, here's a, another important point because the standard inflation rate that is used, the consumer price index, is actually lower, has been lower than the targets that the Federal Reserve sets. You know, okay. so. It's like, what am I talking about if I've been saying there's all this money printing, our dollars losing purchasing power, but the consumer price index is low? And what happens is the standard way that new money is created in our system right now is through bank loans. And when new, new money is loaned from a bank, that is essentially new money that is being created out of nowhere, mm-hmm. right? That is how the main way new money gets created in our system, besides instances of you know, government stimulus like this, or when the government runs deficits, the standard way new money enters the system is um, 
through bank loans, at least until 2008. Um, and what happens is more money has been allowed to be loaned from the banks from 1971 on through 2008 than ever before. Yeah. That's why there's all this new money. Now, who are the people that are taking loans from the bank, right? It's usually not the poorest Americans. It's the it's wealthier Americans who are taking risks to take loans. They may have more economic security to the degree that they can, you know, they weigh that they have the risk to take out loans and they invest things further. Yeah, typically like your mortgage and, uh, you know, car loans, expensive car loans, you know, up to like twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars and Yes, that that for sure. But also, you know, for things like businesses, um, either to start new businesses or to expand already existing businesses, you know, and that includes small businesses too, you know, you want to get another pizza oven or whatever. Um, so more money is entering the system than ever before, as I've said many times, and it's going to these already middle class and above you know, mm -hmm. Americans. And what those people are doing is they're investing it. And they're investing it in ways that um, that don't show up in the standard consumer price index. So the CPI is a basket of goods, you know, of things that Americans buy every day. It's a valuable price index. You know, it, it weighs together the things like the standard price of food, electricity, whatever. And that's how we measure inflation traditionally. Now, What's not included in the CPI is things like the stock market, um, which, you know, I get why the stock market would not be included in a consumer price index because it's not something you buy, but it is something or it's not a good that you consume, but it is a place where money goes, right? And what's happened since 1971 is that the vast majority of the new money that's been created has been financialized and it's going into assets that don't show up in the traditional consumer price index. It's how you get things like a stock market that's at all time highs, you know, for 10 years after the recession of 2008. You know, if you look at a chart of the S&P 500 from 1970 now, it looks bonkers how much the stock market has gone up. Um, and that's your inflation. You know, it's not going up in the standard things of prices like food. You're missing out because the price inflation is going into these sort of financialized assets, which is even further driving up this inequality. So, but wouldn't you also say that the inflation that we're experiencing, you know, just, just simply from the, the Great Depression, right, where, uh, you know, Think there was a whole issue with, um, I believe what it was. The price of goods fell so low it was like it was um, what's it's like opposite of hyperinflation, right? Where prices deflation. Oh, oh, it's just right. Oh, deflation, right? Deflate. I mean, maybe there is a hyperdeflation, but usually we just say it's deflation. Yeah. Right, but it's it's just these um these economic issues with even um I'm trying to think of the word um minimum wage, right? So right. It, it's crazy that in 2008, um, the minimum wage was 6.55, and it wasn't until 2019 it went up to 7.25. And if you, I I feel as if like pricing of over the past 20, 30, 40 years, it's it's grown so exponentially. Like rent is going up, like the cost of electric and gas, PSE and G, they're all going up. The price of education is going up. So all of these things that you have to invest in as, you know, a lower middle class, um, you know, working class person, you're unable to keep up with this inflate, this inflating economy around you. And minimum wage has been the same for 10 years. 
Right. And yet a lot of these economists will tell you that inflation is low. They want prices to grow by more. Um, now, the reason we want inflation to a degree is because it reduces the burden of debts, as we've said over time. Yeah. And when you look at something like the Great Depression, what happens is in the run-up to the Great Depression, there was this run-up in credit and loans and all this bad debt. And then once prices start falling, it makes the real uh, terms of your debt more. You know, your your debt now costs more bread than it did before. Yeah. And we don't want that. It, it encourages you to not invest your money. Um, but... Again, the key link happened once we left the gold standard in 1971. So there's this great chart. I'll see if I can find it to send to you. But it's essentially the cost of goods, you know, a consumer price index type of chart since the dawn of the United States in 1776. Now, $1 in 1800 was worth the same amount as $1 in 1910, 110 years later. So... (laughs) One dollar in eighteen hundred would buy you the same amount of bread or meat as one dollar would in nineteen ten. You know, it's unbelievable. It's eye popping to look at. Yeah. Whereas now, um, in nineteen seventy three, a three dollar an hour wage is equivalent in twenty twenty dollars to a twenty two dollar um, wage. You know, so three dollars in nineteen seventy three is the same as twenty two dollars in nineteen twenty. And, you know, that's ridiculous and, again, eye-popping. Because what it means is that if you saved your $3 an hour in the bank, you didn't want to invest, you know, you shouldn't have to want to invest your money. Mm -hmm. If you just want to save your money, it really should maintain a degree of purchasing power over time. Um, But what's happened is that we've broken this link and now you cannot save your money in dollars. Um, you just can't, or you're going to fall behind. Yeah. And that's where, actually, I think it's worth taking a look at, at at the role of gold in 2020. You know, the way other countries work is most countries are comfortable operating in multiple currencies, okay? It is a, it is a luxury, and it is rare for us in America where we're like, oh, we just use the dollar for everything. Most countries are not comfortable using the dollar for, I mean, using one currency for everything. And the reason for that is because most of them have more poorly managed mm-hmm. currencies, right, than, than the dollar. So if you're in like Nicaragua or whatever, what you do is you try to get as many dollars as you can and you store your savings in dollars, right? And then you try to convert those dollars to the Nicaraguan Cordoba, you know, to spend on food and stuff. So you try to save in one currency and then spend in another. In a weaker currency specifically, right? I know a lot of people that go on vacation to Southern American countries and $100 is almost, you know, equivalent to maybe a thousand sometimes depending on what country you go to. Right, exactly. So you, yeah, so these currencies are weaker currencies and they're constantly devaluing against the dollar. So you want to try to, if you're in one of these countries, what you do is you try to hold as many as much money in dollars as you can and only convert to your local currency when you need to spend it, right? Now, the dollar, you know, there's not really another currency that we can hold against the dollar. You know, the dollar is the most stable national currency. But what that means is that if you're both spending and saving in dollars, you're agreeing 
and consenting to losing your purchasing power over time, you know, because it doesn't matter if the dollar is losing 2% a year when the Nicaraguan dollar is losing 8% a year, you're still saving money by being in dollars. Um, when you're in a dollar mindset, um, when you're dollar dollar only, you're losing money that you keep in the bank every year through purchasing power. Um, gold, you know, has been around, it's been valued for 7,000 years, right? And where gold has value is that it's easy to print new dollars and it's hard to mine new gold, right? Um, even though we've been mining gold for 7,000 years and there is more gold above ground than there's ever been before and we have the best mining technology that we've ever had before, right? Um, we're still only able to increase the new supply of gold that is above ground by less than 2% of the supply a year. You know, that allows gold to store value as a savings technology better than the dollar can. And to illustrate that a little bit further, we all know that the price of college tuition has been skyrocketing, you know, over the last, you know, 50 years or so. How suspicious. Um, college is going up, you know, it's very expensive to go to college. Well, there's this great website, pricedingold.com, where you can look at the price of things, you know, priced in grams of gold as opposed to priced in dollars. Mm -hmm. What you see is that if you look at the price of gold at Yale University um, in 1960 and 2020, college tuition is actually cheaper in gold than it was in 1960. You know, if you're using a metal or a form of money. Gold is a base layer money the same way that um, the dollar and the euro are. You know, you're not investing in a company, right? You're buying a good uh, for its monetary properties. Um, college is actually cheaper if you use this metal that can't be inflated over time. So what am I saying here? It's hard to sort of grasp what I'm saying here. Um, you can't store wealth over time by just holding dollars in the bank, as we've talked about. You lose money if you just store dollars in the bank. Um, whereas if you, for example, store most of your wealth in gold, um, you know, as an alternative to like holding all your money in savings, I'm not talking about investing. I'm sort of talking holding money in base dollars versus holding your money in gold. The price of things is not actually rising over time. And what this highlights is that it's really the dollar that's falling apart as opposed to the price of some of these things really rising more than you'd think. Um, we're really sort of undergoing a little bit of a currency, you know, crisis within our, within our own money. Oh, definitely. Definitely. With the Bitcoin and everything. Right. And I mean, right. That's another thing. I don't know how much you actually know about it, but... Um, Not too much, honestly. <laughs> Right. So, I mean, a quick primer on Bitcoin, because it's really interesting. Um, when you think about spending money digitally today, right, you know, if you pay with a debit card or whatever, your payment has to go through a bunch of financial intermediaries, right? Mm -hmm. If I pay you, you know, through Venmo, Visa gets the information, Venmo gets the information, TD Bank gets the information on my side, and whoever your bank is gets the information there. You know, if I buy something at Pet Goods, 
you know, my bank, their bank, and the Visa or MasterCard gets what you bought, when you bought it, and they're selling that information to advertisers, right? There's no way to make digital payments without going through multiple intermediaries. Mm -hmm. um, so in 2009, this anonymous creator uh, for Bitcoin, Satoshi Nakamoto, wanted to create an online currency that was more like handing a dollar bill to someone than swiping a debit card, yeah. right? This idea of digital cash. Um, so, you know, the Bitcoin network is what is known as decentralized, which means there is no intermediary that your transaction goes through. There's no company, there's no person, there's no government that a transaction goes through. It's purely person to person. Okay. Um, so that's the idea about Bitcoin. And it has monetary characteristics that are... Um, intended to be something like digital gold, right? So there's only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, this idea of digital scarcity is sort of hard to wrap anyone's head around. You know, if I have a PDF file right now, I can make a copy of it and send it to you, right? And now there's two PDFs. Mm -hmm. So we've never really had any sort of item that is... Restricted. Digitally scarce. Yeah. Yeah, it's a hard concept to wrap your head around. Digital scarcity. There, uh, there's never been such a thing before. Um, but with Bitcoin, due to how it's set up in this decentralized way where no one's in control of it, you know, there's no Bitcoin company, there's no CEO, there's no president. Um, it just is being run by, you know, tens of thousands of people running software on their computer right now for free, you know, that don't work for everyone. Um, now we have this asset that has a level of unforgeable scarcity that has never been seen in a digital way before, you know? So it's interesting because, again, there's no other way in the world where if I wanted to send a payment of some form to someone in Japan without going through an intermediary, there, there would be no way to do it before. And now with Bitcoin and the development of these open um, financial systems through blockchain, which is mostly a scam, but Bitcoin <laughs> is real. Um, you know, it, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. It, it's sort of cash plus gold uh, online. So, you know, it has a lot of these this value. And this scarcity, simply not being able to be inflated is valuable. Um, and as the rest of the world continues to print more and more money devaluing their currencies to try and do um you know more forms of stimulus of things that can't be rolled back you know and the way the political conversation is going um only more money is going to be printed we're not going to ever stop printing money as you see proposals like you know things like universal basic income enter the lexicon you know in ways that would not have even been considered a couple years ago you know no matter what it's for new money is going to be created so um, there's going to people are going to value things that you can't just, you know, print and inflate the supply of. Um, and I do think that Americans should be starting to think, uh, try not to be thinking of dollars as something that you can really save your wealth in, um, because that three dollars in 1971 is equivalent to twenty two dollars in 2020. I think that that sort of gap is only going to grow over the next 30 years. And the people that are going to be hurt are the people that are Keeping not the investing in their money. <laughs> the guys keep right. the cash under their beds. 
Right, in the bed or in the bank, too. You know, it's the same thing. It's just the keeping cash. Um, And where governments are not able to fix that problem is because the only tool that governments and central banks have is to create more money, you know, to do a new program, to do X, Y, or Z. Um, But that's just not going to help this problem with the dollar. Uh, there's no way to help the problem with the dollars uh, losing value that involves creating more dollars. Um, so that was a bit of a tangent, but that is what I have to say on that. No, it's it's important because that's the thing. Think about how – and I consider myself quite an intellectual person, and even so, I'm kind of in the dark on the economy. You know, I mean I study capital systems of, you know – um, gov- uh, government that use economic right. systems like capitalism, socialism, and how they work, and you know specifically how they socially affect people. But on the actual like economy side and how it truly functions mathematically and all these different ways, I'm very blind. I really don't know much about Bitcoin. I really don't know much about investing or the stock market. And I have access to you know learning this information, but there's people who are not able to even do that, and there are people who are you know less as informed as I am. And think about, like, how involved they are in this this cycle of um, – or just this lack of education that's offered to American citizens on how to produce wealth, how to value your dollar, how to be a part of this, this system of inflation and, and get the most out of your dollar this year, next year, or what to be investing in or how to invest, what investing basically is, right? Right. That's kind of one of the big problems in our American uh, economic system is – this it's there's just this innate inequality because you know there needs to be a working class at the end of the day that's why this gap has grown so big and like we said before with the stimulus check right you're right. paying this stimulus to the people who are at the bottom who are working for the jobs that are closing yep so you need to give them money so that they can still live and that money is getting reinvested in the companies that survive so that those companies can then invest that money and make more so they're profiting off of the poor and that's just how right and the gap, the gap is growing grows, as a you know? result so when you know uh, yeah. all the memes that people make of bernie sanders or when he says the 1% and the income gap like these things are real like he's not just like blowing smoke up everyone's ass you know right i think it's worth mentioning that any proposal that gives more money to the bottom is going to contribute to this gap growing further and where it gets complicated is when we're talking about What's more important? Is it, you know, raising the floor of the bottom or is it about closing the gap between the top and the bottom? You know, a stimulus check like it does now, like it is now, um, helps the poor. You know, it helps them buy food, helps them survive during this time of economic problems. Um, But the downside of that is that it's going to increase inequality more. And it's a really hard trade-off to walk. Um, and that, that trade-off is there is the point I'm trying to make because, you know, I think there's a lot of thought that if we do more for the bottom, that the, the gap will close between the top and the bottom. When I think that a lot of the policies that are coming from, you know, the left are going to, they might help the bottom. You know, that is clear. They might help the bottom, but it's going to continue to raise the gap uh, of this inequality. Oh, yeah. People, you know, money... The ultimate thing to know here is that money makes money, right? Yes. You know, for example, everyone says when Donald Trump, right, he says the uh, 
uh, the small loan of a million dollars. And that's not, a, that's not a small loan. Like, what could really, if, if you gave someone who knew what to do with money a $1 million loan, that's very easy to flip into double yep. digit, you know, millions. Yep, yep. Possibly even billions at some point, right? It's not, it's not a hard thing to do if you have that knowledge. But that's the problem. The, the knowledge and the accessibility to that amount, that size of money. The amount of risk that people are able to afford. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, I would never be able to afford, you know, a, you know, a hundred thousand, you know, or million dollar, you know, risk like that at all. I don't think I right. would never get approved. No, of course not. <laughs> but, but, you know, and that, that's, that's what the problem is. And you also mentioned before, just, um, it's just cyclical and right. it's really just taking advantage of like working class and, you know, middle America. And, that's just kind of like how American capitalism works. And, you know, we're, we do have a lot of socialist policies to kind of offset the, the inequality that's that's blatantly there. Right. And I think, you know, it, it's that's why American government, the American economy, it's very um, – people on both sides are very, very – it's very, uh, very misconstrued. You know, the, the right is just you know, like, no, down with socialism, um, Communism can't exist here, blah, blah, blah. But we have a lot of social policy here in America, and it it kind of serves to, you know, it just bene- benefits the upper class, right? Because you're providing health insurance for the workers. You're providing all, all these different services for people who can't afford it, right? Right. It's, it's just this crazy system that, for some strange reason, works here. And the one thing that I just always have to question is um, we've been talking about the inflation and think you know the do- the value of the dollar going up over time, but my question is why is it that um, one thing that people from the set like you said the seventies say they tell us young gu- young guys and girls that uh, you had to pull yourself up by the bootstraps you know get a summer job and pay for college, meanwhile you're working for what seven seven fifty an hour. And you're trying to pay off a what a twenty thousand dollar a year school? Yeah. How is that ever gonna? Meanwhile, you're trying to pay rent. You know, if you're living on your own, or you're trying to pay bills and a car and insurance, and it's really not as easy as it was back then. On you know, prior probably around the time of the gold standard, right, where things had a specific set value. Right. So, would you think that things are getting harder for everyday Americans? Well, here's what I will say about that. Now, the thing with the minimum wage at a national level, and this is going to get a double take from you for sure, but raising the national minimum wage is elitist. And what I mean by that, you know, not not raising at all, but the thing is there's such a discrepancy in the price of things in big cities and the middle of the country, right? Mm -hmm. There are tens of millions of people that live in the middle of the country where 725 is not even, you know, a light wage. It's more than enough to live and retire on. Yeah. You know, there was this Twitter um, thread going on the other day where people were getting roasted or this company was getting roasted in South Dakota for offering a full-time position for $20,000 a year. But the thing is, $20,000 a year in South Dakota is worth more than $50,000 a year in New York City. It's a better wage. Um, By a lot. Yes, it's significantly so. Um, So the problem comes when you have a national minimum wage 
like this. And I'm, I'm not advocating against one, but I'm saying what you need to do is you need to index it by each state. It needs to be different by state so that it's equivalent overall. Because if you set a $15 minimum wage nationally, you're essentially telling 25 states in the middle of the country with still tens of millions of people, you know, go screw yourself because those people cannot afford a $15 minimum wage, nor do they need to pay a, you know, a $15 minimum wage to not only live, but survive, you know, $15 in Kansas is a lot more money than it is here. So, you know, $7 in South, $7 in South Dakota could be the same thing as $33 in New York city, True. you know? And I think that that kind of thing where it sounds like, you know, looking out for the poorest Americans in cities is, you know, I think it makes the poorest Americans in the rest of the country feel like they are not being thought of. Um, and if you say something like, oh, well, you know, there's so many more people in these cities, we still have to just make that policy. You're still setting up a lot of these people in the middle of the country, you know, who can't afford to pay these things. And if they're not able to pay these things and you say, you know, oh, well, you'll just ignore it anyway. You know, you open them up to legal issues, getting sued or whatever. Um, and I think that that kind of thing, this focus on policies that benefit that do benefit people in big cities and i support raising the minimum wage in places like new york city um and you know 15 dollars an hour worked more than fine in seattle you know i think a lot of the discussion against the minimum wage rises are you know i think those are in bad faith and that's not what i'm trying to say here but i do believe that you know that that this kind of city focused policy on the national level is why a lot of those states in the middle of the country do vote red you know, regularly, because I think that a minimum wage raise, you know, nationally is a bad, you know, it hurts a lot of poor Americans, just not where we're living. True. Very true. You know, you always hear people from uh, New York and New Jersey, they're like, I'm moving to Pennsylvania, I'm moving down south. And then, you know, then that's usually when they retire. And, right. and basically, let's say they retire with, I don't know, we'll throw out a number, $100,000 saved up or whatever. That's sure. gonna that's gonna go a longer way down south or you know out Midwest, you know where that that money virtual not virtually but like it basically feels as if maybe you moved out there with maybe like four hundred thousand dollars instead because the price of goods are half the price or you know services are a quarter of what they were in New York City. Right, and that effect that that effect is drastic, and I think it's more drastic than a lot of people realize. Oh, absolutely. Why do you think so many people move to Pennsylvania? Right, because like right. you can go and rent a four or five bedroom house for a thousand dollars a month. Right, exactly, and then obviously once you even get further, you know, into random places, it becomes even more pronounced. Yeah, so it, and it's just it's really astounding. Like you like you said, before, like when we just look at it at all three levels, right? We have local government, we have state government, and we have the federal government, and you know, really the federal regulations on money is really what we all tend to follow. Right. And it's just such a multifaceted question, and no one really thinks this deeply about money or our economy, how it works, how it functions, what's the best way to, to grow in it, how can you keep up with the growth of the economy, how to not be left behind, like we were talking about with like the, the, the money hoarders right. and things like that. And Now, um, you know, one thing that all this looking into the all this money um, research is – 
kind of made me start to wonder more is, you know, money and monetary policy should make sense. You know, it shouldn't be something that you have to talk in circles to try to loop yourself into realizing that it makes sense somehow, you know? It's supposed to be simple. And the problem with that is I keep going back to this idea, and this is admittedly fringe thinking, okay? This is not mainstream, uh, you know, thinking on economics and monetary policy, but the idea that this idea of deflation is bad, you know, the idea that prices should fall over time is bad, just is making less and less sense to me as I learn more about money. You know, if prices fell over time, then you would be able to store your purchasing power by just keeping your money in the bank or under your mattress, and you would be able to buy just as much food, just as much housing, you know, 15 years from now as you are today. But we're told that saving money is bad and that you need to go into debt. And now you need to go into more debt than ever before. And instead of trying to talk myself into the circle of how that makes sense, which is what we've all been taught to the degree that we don't even question it. Exactly. We don't even question this, that I'm starting to push back on this idea that, you know, you should be able to save your money. Um, and that you should be able to buy, you know, maintain your purchasing power without having to invest. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody should be encouraged to go into debt. Um, and the system shouldn't rely on everybody going into debt. It's a questionable monetary system um, that I'm starting to, as I learn more about, mm -hmm. you know, again, the history of money, you know, why clay tokens in Mesopotamia didn't work and this kind of stuff. It's like, wait a second, you know. I'm not sure that we've that this makes sense, and we should be questioning it. Yeah, it's something we have to question. You know, we live in this society, and this is what kind of like our social, like economic ruling is. And like, like I was telling you before, when I Google searched the U.S. national debt, like how is it that we are at a 26 trillion dollar deficit? Like, it's like first of all, I don't know how it could be that high, and second of all, when I Huge. looked at um, the other three, the, the next two countries, so the second most in debt and the third most in debt, it's Japan at $12 trillion and yep. China at 7 Yep. Which are Hugely it's, it's less. literally half and one-third less. And then when I was, like, screwing around looking at student loan debt in America, mm -hmm. it's about, about one in six adults above the age of 18 have a collective total of $1.5 trillion in student loan debt. Right. And, like, these numbers are just – like, that's a lot of money. Yeah, right. It's a lot of money and, um, I mean, it's never going to get paid back. You know, there's just no way to do – to pay back that kind of debt. What's going to end up happening is that it's either going to be, you know, quote-unquote forgiven by these other countries, but I think that's unlikely, or we're going to just print more money to pay off these debts. And both of those sort of lead to the same place for an economy, which is that the dollar is going to be – you know, increasingly devalued. But the thing with this debt is that it sort of loops itself into a circle. Um, that's that's it. Right. Cyclical. How do we get out? It's an Obo it's a Ouroboros, right? Exactly. It's like this, the, the dragon eating its tail. And how do we ever get – how do you get out of this cycle? Like that's, that's the next question, right? That's the final question, right? right? Where do we go from here? 
And like, what what is the future of money looking like? We talked about Bitcoin. Um, we're talking. We talked about the gold standard, how we got off of it, and the value of the dollar, and trusting the value of the dollar. And we're the economic leaders of the world. Like, everyone's eye is always on America, especially when it comes to ep- right. economic opportunity, funding, and just stability. So it's like, what do you think? is next for us like are like do these debts get paid off or you know do wages ever catch up to this ever increasing inflation rate and is there going to be another depression or recession as you know we just had in 2008 so it's so part of the problem is that there's sort of this reinforcing loop where um debt has been increasing at such a rate that the only way to pay off the debt is sort of to take out more debt to make the value of your previous debt worth less is sort of the loop that our mm. our, our economy and our government is on. Um, uh, that that just clicked for right. me. Right. <laughs> uh, there's no yeah. So the problem is, and where I think that we're going to see some problems going forward is that technology should be giving us abundance, right? Technology technology should be giving us more goods for cheaper, right? As technology improves. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is though, that our governments and the Federal Reserve cannot let prices fall to the degree that they should, or else it increases the burdens of these debts to the degree that they're not going to get paid back. Um, so this sort of money printing philosophy is sort of a do everything we can to fight prices from falling um, because then we can't pay back our debt. And again, to me, that's kind of backwards. You know, I get the importance of paying back the debt, but I think we should be embracing these prices getting lower because it can bring us more abundance. Um, and where I think governments and central banks are overlooking some important um parts is that a lot of us don't really understand, uh, or it's hard to imagine exponentials, you know, like exponential growth. So mm-hmm. as a thought experiment, if you folded a piece of paper 50 times, you know, in real life, you can only do it seven. But if yeah. you folded a piece of paper 50 times, how high would it reach? Huh. Take a guess. I don't, I, don't, I don't even know. Okay. It would reach the sun. Um, it would reach the sun if you folded a piece of paper 50 times, something that thin. Um, because that's exponential growth. When you double the growth of something, you know, the thickness of even something as thin of a piece of paper, 50 times, it quickly increases to the degree that it would be from here to the sun. You know, you can't actually do it, but that's how much exponential growth is. And technology is advancing exponentially. Um, to... The degree that, you know, sometimes they say even in things like computing power, you know, a computer can get twice as fast every 18 months or two years, right? And some of this smart technology too, it advances at a rate that's almost doubling every year or two. Um, And I think what that's going to lead to is technology that's able to produce abundance at a degree that we have never, ever seen before. Um, And what that's going to do is I think prices of things are going to fall. I think there's going to be no way to print money to outweigh the falling prices from technological growth. Um, And where that could lead to problems is if you just keep printing money, printing money, printing money, you can actually break the currency, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that we are, 
at risk of breaking the currency, um, especially because this kind of policy is not just happening in the United States. It's happening on um, a global scale. So do you, do you think we're reaching a critical mass? I think that we have I think we've surpassed a critical mass to do anything about it. Um, and but I don't think we've reached a point where we're starting to see any sort of uh, critical effects from it. But I don't see any way to roll any of this back. Um, mm-hmm. It's just too so much. We're kind of like tread, we're treading in. So we're basically in the last chapter of the book, and uh, we're just kind of like waiting to get to the end. Yes, although, you know, it's still unsure what exactly that end will look like, but I think that we have put out the small forest fires to the degree that now there is so much stuff that I don't know that we're going to be able to uh, retroactively clean this up. Um, So it will be interesting to see. Um, I will say one point. I'll try to keep it quick, as I know we're wrapping up soon. Um, one thing that the dollar has in its favor is that it is the global reserve currency, okay? And what that means is that it is the one currency that is demanded by every central bank around the world, right, to do financial transactions. Um, if Russia is buying oil from Saudi Arabia, they're doing that in dollars, not in either of their own currencies. Um, and what that allows for is it takes some of the inflationary pressure off the dollar. Because if we print a lot of money and all that money stays in America, the price of goods is going to rise. Like with the example I gave in your room right now with the limited amount of goods. Um, But what happens is that we print all of this money to fund stimulus and stuff. And a lot of that money leaks out of the country because it's demanded by, you know, uh, the EU and all of these countries around the world. They need dollars. Um, and at this, at this specific point in time, a lot of other countries are having currency problems before the dollar. And as a result, they want more dollars than ever. There's more demand for the dollar globally than ever. Um, and what, what, I'm, what that really means is that it's possible that a lot of other currencies outside the country fail, but the dollar manages to survive much longer because everyone wants dollars because their own currencies are even worse. Um, and what the future looks like in that scenario, I'm not quite sure. One final point, moving on uh, like very quickly, I just want to talk about, for just a minute or so, this idea of money as an application layer uh, that I think we're going to be seeing soon, which... Um, you know, it might not be in Bitcoin. It might be something like if we create our own digital currency, you know, like a purely digital dollar that's not the same as the dollars in the bank account we have. We could, you know, there's talks of central banks creating their own purely digital currencies. Um, but Bitcoin is what has sort of, you know, shown that this possibility is there. This idea of money as an application layer where you can build applications and systems directly on top of a system of digital money. So, you know, your car in the future might, your self-driving car in the future might, you know, it won't have a credit card attached to it to automatically pay for parking, but it could have a little Bitcoin like in your car to automatically pay for parking. Um, and there's things like there's this messaging protocol that, you know, no one's using it. It's just an, like an alpha level app on Bitcoin or whatever, but it's like a WhatsApp that 
It's like WhatsApp built on top of a digital currency like Bitcoin, an application layer where you send messages to each other for like fractions of a cent. So it would be like one one thousandth of a cent. You set essentially nothing. You send the message to someone else and you're able to have like a WhatsApp that doesn't go through Facebook or any company or any government, you know, purely peer to peer kind of um, systems being built where you can use money as an application in a way that doesn't exist before, you know, instead of getting paid once every two weeks, you know, we're going to head to a future where you're getting paid by the second for your work. You know, it's not possible with our banking system now, but it's, you know, it's clearly possible now, you know, it's not going to happen now. It might not happen in the next five years, but um, systems are in place for this idea of money as an application layer. Um, And if our own money doesn't adapt to being able to do these things, people are going to gravitate towards the forms of money that fulfill these roles better. Uh, So money is just getting started. It's going to be a fascinating... um, I mean, a couple decades, a lot of stuff is, it's not going to happen. It might happen fast. It might not happen fast. But um, I encourage everyone to start at least wondering about this question of like, what is money and how does it really work? How should it work? I mean, you know, just talking about technology in and of itself, it's like you said, it has evolved so exponentially fast. Right. That we honestly don't know what technologies are going to be available to us like literally next year. You know, like, I remember when, um, you know, silly example would be, like, you know, growing up as, like, a gamer, you know, playing through the Atari and then, you know, going through every single gaming console to now virtual reality. True. Where it, se- it feels almost, like, fluid. Yeah. I'm, it's kind of it's kind of crazy. And it's only been, what, 20, 30, 30 years Right. Max. And for anyone listening, I don't – if you haven't tried VR yet, I have a, an Oculus Quest myself. Uh, VR is impressive. It is more impressive than you think. It is really immersive. Uh, so that's a good example. Yeah, I, and I mean, I just I study just the history of technology, and I study how the advancement in technology reflects the changes in the assumptions and understanding of gender roles between men and female mm. uh, uh, females. So it's just just by tracing how fast technology has changed from that end, right? Now I'm trying. Now I'm I'm kind of like going back and questioning like. Um, also, in my thesis that I work on, um, I question capitalism as well right. as a force for you know affecting these things like the advancement of technology and, and social constructions. And one thing I've never thought about specifically is money, in specific, like actual money. Right, and as a technology. It's fascinating to go back and apply to all the things that I've learned personally, and just question going forward. I mean, I have my a lot of my friends recently have been. Trying to get me into the Robinhood app, right? You know, and trying to do like penny investing, classic, um, right? So I'm trying to like, yeah, you know, obviously you want to be careful with that kind of stuff. Um, you know, penny investing, penny stocks, these kind of get rich flip flip stocks kind of thing. I mean, the safest thing that any new investor would do as they're maybe learning about stuff is you, you can invest in these funds that sort of track the entire market as a whole, mm-hmm. you know, so instead of having to pick Visa or Apple or whatever, or these, you know, penny stocks to try to get rich, what you do is you can just invest in something that follows the entire S&P 500. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, 
those kind of index funds is what they're called is a good way to get exposure without having to, and you are still risking, you know, the overall market up or down, but you don't have to uh, be knowledgeable enough to analyze companies to know what to invest in or whatever. Um, You know, that kind of slow, steady growth, but right. I mean, and that's, that's the direction we're moving in. You know, it's, it's crazy that you can just open up an app on your phone, invest in some companies and just, and watch the money grow. I mean, I see people posting on social media, like, yeah, I just made $600 today. Right. Like it's I'm like, true. Um, and it is a flaw of the system that you have, that if you're not doing that, you might be falling behind, you know, mm-hmm. investment will always be there in any system, you know, for people that want to take risk, you know, with a hot, with a chance of increased reward. But it's a problem when you're essentially telling a large part of the population that doesn't have to be interested in financial markets. You know, if you're not participating in this, then, you know, you're losing, you're losing a lot of power. You know, I mean, if you think of it in terms of time, mm-hmm. you know, money as a reflection of human time, you know, from $3 an hour to $20 an hour over 50 years, in order to make up that purchasing power, it's like you have to work an extra 20, 25 years to make up for that, you know, the work you did from 1970 to 1990 that's now worth 10% of what it used to be. Yep. And just because you didn't invest it, you just, you, you stored it in the wrong place. Right. You, you stored it securely, you know, um, but... Yeah, that's not good enough. You can't maintain you can't maintain your value in the dollar. Um, and you know, keep that in mind as you know. I'm I can guess maybe some of your friends, some of my friends as well. I know where they lean politically, where I feel you know emotionally on the same side politically as well. But just keep in mind anytime you hear a um, a policy proposal that is going to be funded through something like money printing, that it's going to lead to more of a reliance of debt on the economy and more of a reliance on or more of a tax on savings and it's going to grow the inequality gap. Um, if you're not paying for it with the tax, then you're hurting the poor, in my opinion. Um, or you're making the gap grow larger. Uh, and it's something to keep in mind. Oh, absolutely. I mean, going, I mean, going forward, I'm sure, I mean, I've learned an absurd amount of information just from this alone. And I'm sure that people listening have learned just as much. And it's, it's a valid question, right? What is money? And I'm glad that we were able to get a little bit of a perspective on it. And ultimately, like I tell everybody, like it is also our responsibility to go and look up this information, right? We have com- these computers in front of us. You know, we have our phones. We have this, the smartest computers in the world are in the palm of our hands. Like use it. Yep. You know, re- look at look for the information online. Like it's there wherever you want to read it. There's people talking about it all over, you know, and Sean was kind enough to share all of his knowledge and his expertise on this whole topic. And now we have a little bit of an insight as to what money truly is, right? And it changes our perspectives going forward. I know one goal I've been trying to do is I've been trying to like invest, you know, in the economy or whatnot, um, stocks, and I just don't know where to start. And that's, you know, that's my next step personally. So it, you definitely outlined the whole process forward, but it's still scary, right? I don't even know what tomorrow, what next year is going to be like. Maybe everything's going to switch to Bitcoin or you know, my car is going to pay for my parking tickets. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, I, I hate, I don't like the system we're in at all. Right. I feel like the stock market right now is a, is a house of cards being propped up by money printing. Mm-hmm. But as I've heard before, you know, when the music is on, you have to dance. Right. And the music of federal 
policy, uh, Federal Reserve policy is on. The money printing is here and it's not going away. And if you're not, you know, the music is on. So you got to dance and you got to participate. Um, even though, you know, I don't like it. It doesn't feel real to me either, but the music is on. Um, I've heard an analogy that, you know, the current state of things like the stock market, it's like, you know, everyone's playing musical chairs and mm. all the chairs have been taken away, but everyone is still dancing happily because nobody remembers the last time that the music stopped, you oh. know? Um, and what we're doing now is the music is just playing and there's no signs that it's going to stop anytime soon, you know? It can't stop or else we're all going to fall down. Um, so, you know, we'll see what happens, but right now I'm dancing along with the rest of them, you know? Because if you're not dancing, you're losing power purchasing power all right well i'm about to i'm about to get up out of my chair and start dancing (laughs) (laughs) awesome sean thank you so much for coming by and spreading your information with us because lord knows i had absolutely no idea before this what was going on with money at all right it was a pleasure to talk to you tom if anyone wants to look at this stuff a little bit further, you can check out my seven-part educational YouTube series in Introduction to Money. Those seven videos, they are, they're about 10 minutes each. Um, and while I cover some of the stuff we talked about here, you know, I scripted out all those videos. I have PowerPoint slides for them. It might be a little easier for anyone whose head might be spinning after the directions we took here to check out those videos um, made for beginners. And, um, follow me on Twitter at Sean Cover, and I have a new audio newsletter questioning money out now for a few weeks that takes about just a short five minute look, uh, about one issue related to money and questioning money each week. Um, you can find that we'll link to it in the show notes. Um, and thank you so much for talking, Tom. I appreciate what you're doing, and this was a good conversation. Oh, absolutely. Be sure I'm going to be linking all of your information. We're going to be paying attention to your newsletters because there's still so many questions that we haven't been able to discuss here. And I'm hoping that you'll be able to at least cover that in the future. And if anyone has questions about money, please contact Sean here. Ask him questions about money. Ask him what's going on. He has a lot of insight as to what's going to be coming next. And it's always good to be informed, right? It's the name of the podcast. You know, I'm right. a funny guy. But you know, <laughs> thank you for coming and getting us informed, Sean. I really appreciate it, man. Thanks, Tom. And have a great night. I appreciate it, too. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Get Informed podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. And I'm hoping that you can at least walk away thinking that you felt like you got informed on something. That's my goal. So look forward to more content for the upcoming year, and I just hope that everyone stays well and continue to stay safe. Thank you, and have a good one.